Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be joined by Prakash Nair, the CEO and founder of Education Design International. Uh, Prakash, welcome to Trending in Education. My pleasure, Mike. I've heard a few of your podcasts and uh, very honored to be here with you today. Yeah, and we're honored to have you. You're someone who's been on a really interesting educational journey uh, and life journey. And in many ways, you've been able to realize some of your passion around the design of schools and being more creative and imaginative about how we re reframe and reconceptualize the, the physical space in which learning happens. I'd love to get maybe some introductory thoughts from you on who you are and what has gotten you to this point in your career. And then we'll dive into some more about uh, the new model of the classroom that hopefully we'll, we'll be able to start uh, realizing in the coming years. Sure, thanks, Mike. I actually started my career in New York City as an urban fellow. I was one of 20 students brought in from around the country to work in management positions in New York City. Mm -hmm. And that led to eventually me becoming the director of operations for school construction for the city of New York, which mm -hmm. had a budget of about a billion dollars a year right. uh, between 1989 and 1999 when I was there. Wow. And it was a very you know, satisfying position. We built we built over a hundred schools while i was there we renovated well over 600. i mean schools i don't know if you know this were using coal-fired boilers so kids were going home with carbon monoxide poisoning oh my goodness and so it was uh, an important thing to change those schools to you know the oil gas um, you know, furnaces and all that so there was a lot of good stuff happening there but the one thing that uh, didn't happen was we didn't improve education and this was a shocking realization when i started looking at the data Mm -hmm. Because it just seemed crazy that you could spend $10 billion on an education enterprise and yeah. have no impact on education. Mm -hmm. And the reasons were very simple. We never talked to principals. We never looked at the research on education. We were mm -hmm. building buildings. In fact, yeah. some of them won design awards. So mm -hmm. anyway, so my experience at that point had only been as a bureaucrat. I mean, I'd worked all my life in New York City government. Yeah. And, but anyway, so the idea was... I can't keep doing this now that I know I'm not really making a difference in the lives yeah. of children yeah. other than putting them in nice looking buildings. And so I thought that there might be a market to do something different. And I started my company, uh, which was to essentially follow the research on, from the education side of what mm -hmm. education really is, how people actually learn, especially young children, and how can we connect learning environments um, to children's way, natural way of learning instead of trapping them in these boxes and then yeah. hoping that learning is somehow magically going to happen. Yeah. And so over the past 20 years, that's what I've been doing, working with an alternative kind of school. And uh, our practice had expanded to 52 countries on mm. six continents. So clearly yeah. there's a hunger for this new way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating stuff. And, and in many ways, running counter to the older model of the school as an as a factory uh, of sorts, the industrial model, which has been around since, I know you've written some histories about this. I'd love to hear like the history of classroom buildings and the facilities that students learn in, particularly in the U.S., but maybe globally, and then how in some ways we're, we're still in that model. I'd love to hear you maybe expand more on that for our listeners. Yeah, schools weren't always the way they look today. There was a one-room schoolhouse, which was essentially a multi-age grouping with multidisciplinary studies happening with, with a teacher who mm -hmm. essentially more than often than not became a facilitator because the children appear uh, instructed each other. Uh, there was cooperative learning. There was a lot of stuff happening outside. 
And what happened is we got very enamored by the industrial revolution. Yeah. With particularly the Fordist, with the Ford was the first one to basically bring the industrial model to the masses, right? Yeah. People who worked in Ford could afford to buy a, Ford, uh, a car. Right. And so the idea was that education is so important that it need, it can, in fact, be mass produced so that more and more children can benefit. The underlying idea was good that we want to bring education to the masses, but the method of using the industrialization method to get there was wrong. Right. It was wrong from day one. It was always an inhumane way to treat children, to trap them in boxes with a right. teacher and right. expect them to magically be learned, yeah. learn it. But remember, right. in the old days, the, you defined education as being able to do the three R's, you know, right. reading, writing, and arithmetic. So I think that in that sense, if that's all you were expecting, then yes, schools did deliver. Right, because in many ways, the expectation was you're delivering workers and yeah. the workers were designed for the industrial model where there were lots of factory jobs. Right. This is during the, the, like the early industrialization that Absolutely. happened in the first half of the 20th century. Right. But that was the first half of the 20th century. The model, however, became pretty sticky. So we still, yeah. in some ways, think of it the same way. That's true. But there are two aspects. Was one, in fact, it did prepare uh, students to work in factories mm -hmm. um, and factory jobs actually paid quite well yes. you could get 35 dollars an hour working in, a, in an auto factory mm -hmm. and so in our high school education actually got you a pretty decent job and you could yep. actually live a decent middle class life so in if you consider that as a success of education one could actually argue that ex education was successful but i don't think so because john dewey as early as the turn of the century said it was inhumane to put kids in these conditions mm -hmm. so regardless of your out uh, of your goals, right. they could have been a better way of getting there. Just because we hammered people into submission so they could work in a factory right. doesn't make it. And if they could look back on their 20 years and say, okay, I suffered for 20 years, but here I am working in a factory and bringing right. home a good paycheck. To right, me, right. the end, just, end doesn't justify the means. Yeah, Education was always bad. And the factory model always worked, didn't work uh, well. And yeah. especially today, it doesn't work at all. Yeah, I guess part of what was okay, at least then, was that model would design individuals or give folks the opportunity to plug into the workforce. There would be jobs on the other end of that educational journey. Now that same model of the what you refer to as cells and bells, which I, I really love that turn of mm -hmm. phrase, because there is almost a prison-like attitude towards uh, design and classroom management that may have worked when there were those factory jobs that were paying $35 an hour even if you would tolerate the, the inhumanity of the experience, you could at least say coming out of it, you're going to be educated and you'll be able to plug into the local mill to mm -hmm. get a job. Now, in light of the fourth industrial revolution that we're in the midst of, those jobs are becoming automated and the type of work that we're hopefully educating our, our children for is being transformed into something that's more uh, creative, collaborative, problem-based, social and emotional Many of those things are not supported by the old uh, cells and bells model. So if it was efficient mm -hmm. in the past, it's becoming less efficient now. And now on top of all that, you've been preaching this, I'm picking up what you're putting down, but, but now in light of the pandemic, there is an opportunity to reimagine the physical space in which uh, students will be educated in K-12 in particular. And I imagine that's driving a lot of thought on your side. I'd love to get some of your perspective mm -hmm. on how now that we're in this fourth industrial wave and we're in the midst of this pandemic, which is requiring us to think differently about physical spaces, I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective mm -hmm. on where we are today. 
I want to touch on a couple of things here. One is that there is a confluence of events today, which is forcing us to at least face the reality that children graduating from school are not employable because the jobs that are there don't match their skill sets. Okay, so that so there is a, there is an economic sort of a drive to have more educated children in the sense that the companies and the workforce needs them. But I think the important thing for us to understand is that the establishment of education and the adults, and I uh, take responsibility for it too. I, I worked for multiple years building schools that were obsolete on the day they opened. Yeah. And I felt I should have had some responsibility uh, for that. So I mm-hmm. guess my whole remainder of my life is a journey of redemption. At least I'm trying to do something about it. Yeah, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the point is that I don't think we actually care about children. Because think about it, if we cared about children, how could we subject them to this thing called education where you're sitting on a cheap plastic chair for six hours and many times in windowless rooms even, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. How could we rationalize that? We wouldn't allow the, uh, ourselves to be in that position. Mm-hmm. And, and the, when the world has changed all around us, we are perfectly content sending our children to these places, which really, as I said, uh, other than for a few who thrive in, the, in these particular circumstances because they get rewarded, for the things that they happen to be good at. Yeah. The vast majority of students who are good at things other than what school celebrates are marginalized mm-hmm. in schools. So I think we have to face that reality. And while the confluence of events is now forcing us to accept that high school students no longer can be employed in the way they could be, yeah. we still have to accept reality, but we never cared about them. Right. Now we're saying we're going to do something about it because of the economy. Mm-hmm. But I think that's sometimes a little bit uh, too optimistic. Because I think the inertia of doing things the way we've always done it. In fact, in education, there's a saying, we do it this way because that's the way we've always done it. Yeah. It's called yeah. Katwadi. And basically, that inertia is very strong. And I'm mm-hmm. not 100% sure that even with all the stuff that's happening today, we have enough force to push that inertia aside. Yeah. It is interesting because there's a combination of rethinking of the public space uh, in that, where will we send our, our kids to school? And we're taping this in uh, the middle of September, and there's a lot of concern around whether these school facilities can be open at all in light of uh, the, the risk around the pandemic. For you, as someone with the, the depth of experience that you have in this space, I imagine you have some interesting ideas around how we could find a path through this, which which probably involves some reimagining of where education happens when it is in the public forum. I know you've just written something about the power of outdoor learning. I'd love to hear you talk a little more about how we can begin to explore new models that may be more beneficial to reimagining how we can teach. The one thing I would advise schools is to not uh, duplicate in the online world what we have been doing in school. Mm -hmm. We've already established that the physical school was a pretty bad place. And I'm not blaming educators for it. It's like you give somebody a piece of hardware right? Uh, and they can only run the software that hardware will run. Mm-hmm. So if I gave you an Apple IIe, we couldn't be having this conversation today. Right. So you can only do what you can do with what I've given you. If right. I'm giving you a classroom, uh, a bunch of classrooms and a gymnasium and an auditorium and the cafeteria, mm-hmm. your education model is pretty much fixed. Yeah, you, you almost you have to now put a teacher in there with a bunch of kids. Yeah, you sort them by age and on, and the curriculum then fits to that model. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is that model was dictated largely by the fact that your building block was the classroom. Mm-hmm. 
if that building block had taken away, the fundamental building block of school is the classroom. If I could take that away, imagine the manner in which I'm freed up to do education better. Right. So my point would to teach uh, to schools would be immediately you can change the online education model by freeing yourself from that classroom uh, based thinking. Mm-hmm. Don't ha- I have the idea one teacher and 30 kids on a Zoom meeting, for example. Right, it makes right, absolutely right. no sense. Why should they all be sitting there at the same time? They're not in right. the same room. They're in right. different rooms all over the all over this uh, place. Right. So I'm just saying start with that. Mm-hmm. And immediately you are ahead of the game. You, know? you can create uh, different kinds of groupings. You can create inter-age groupings. You can bring in experts from other parts of the country. To, yep. You can have kids uh, create stuff. And by the way, the stuff that they create doesn't have to be all online. The online, if I want to learn to play a guitar, yes, I may go on YouTube. But in the end, I'm playing the guitar. If I'm pl- learning how to plant a, a tomatoes, yeah. I'm going out into the garden planting tomatoes. Yeah, I may watch a YouTube video on how to grow tomatoes. So the idea that the online world can be an entry point into real education, which doesn't happen in front of the computer necessarily, unless you're yeah. a writer. Maybe, right, right. right. Mm-hmm. And it's what you do. <laughs> like, right. uh, yeah. A lot of it happens outside the realms of the computer. So I right, think the computer right. can be a great leveler in the sense that it allows children to have access to the kind of expertise that right now they don't have, right? Particularly in underserved communities, mm-hmm. kids are, there's a direct correlation between the quality of schools and the socioeconomic background of a particular neighborhood. Guess what? We can break that. I would think that way about the pandemic and thinking that if it's going to be a hybrid, at least the online version, let's keep it uh, different. Yeah. Now, I do want to acknowledge that there are many children who do benefit greatly from being in the physical school. Mm-hmm. And they are the ones who may be getting a breakfast or lunch at school, yep. maybe coming from abused uh, homes where school becomes Just their, their safe, rec- place. safe yeah. haven. I, I want to make sure that we don't ignore them. Mm-hmm. But I don't want that to mirror the fact that it's as bad for them as it's for everybody else, right. except that they, for them, it's a little better than what they had at home, but that doesn't make it humane for them either. So right. if we improve schooling, we can improve it for them as we can for everybody else. Yeah, I, I do. I, I'm very much struck by the idea that rather than design just for one function, which is the classroom function or the classroom structure and create as hundreds, thousands, millions of them, how many, Lord knows how many Zoom rooms are out there right now. <laughs> all yeah. around the same size, basically okay. delivering exactly the same thing. Right. What I was struck by as I was reading up on your work is that the whole notion of form follows function and mm-hmm. how in learning contexts, there are different things that learners will need, different contexts in which they're going to engage. I saw that you did bring some of those notions from educational psychology and, and educational uh, theory into the world of architecture and school design. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's relevant both in terms of reimagining our physical environments in light of the pandemic, but also to your point, rather than just trying to redesign for one function, which is a classroom function, everything that goes online, you at least had these four constructs that I thought were really resonant, and I'd love to hear you expand a bit more on that. Yeah, I think it's an interesting, the form follows function is a very reliable architectural yeah. <laughs> terminology, right. because in every case, you want the buildings that you design to be able to serve whatever function an airport needs to function like an airport, you right. know, and design airports will do the job well. Can't use form follows function in school. Mm. And, for, and the, the simple reason for that is because if I were to ask a teacher, what do you want? If you have carte blanche, what would a teacher say? 
Mm. Give me a bigger classroom and more storage. Right, right. Because that's the form he or she is familiar with. Yeah. The idea that education can have a form factor that is so completely you know, different than anything that I'm ever used to was something that would not occur to her because the frame of reference yes. is what is going to determine the function. So what happens in schools is that the function is in, in, tied up with the form in, in such a deep psychological sense that mm -hmm. you can't separate the two. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that we need to go with the Steve Jobs methodology here, which is to just throw the iPad out there and yeah. hope somebody picks it up and figures out what to do with it. Right, right. Nobody was asking for an iPad when he designed, when he put it out there. In fact, if you look at the reviews, people were panning the iPad even as millions of them were flying off the shelves. Right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. The reason being, there was no function for it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Nobody needed it. They were, yeah. they were functioning perfectly well before the iPad came along. Interesting. Right? They yeah, had an yeah. iPhone and then they had a, and they had a MacBook and they said, why do I need this device in the middle? Why I'm going to carry a third device around with me? Right. So the point I'm making is that form and function are to tie together in, inextricably. Mm. So in a case of school, I'm saying that you can't think about, let me design a new building, mm -hmm. right? I have to think about, let me step aside and say, what does good education look like? and create the form and the function simultaneously. So mm -hmm. they're intertwined. And so they cannot separate one from the other. Yeah. And the problem most of the time we have with school design is that we are trying to work at the margins and trying to fix something that's, that's completely broken. It's like you're, you're driving a horse-drawn carriage and mm -hmm. somebody's invented the motorbike, um, uh, the car, and then they say, but that's all great, but I don't want to get rid of the horse. Right. And the classroom in a sense is the horse. Mm -hmm. And if you can't get rid of that, right. then, then you can't really fix it. So the idea of uh, let me create nice atriums, let me create a nice media center, let me do this and that, doesn't work because fundamentally you have accepted the idea that the education can be mass produced and it right. cannot. Right. So getting to the, the the construct though of the the watering hole versus the the David Thornburg's work, I thought would be an interesting place. That's where I was trying to go, at least with the, oh, the form, mm -hmm. where like at least to deliver on those types of experiences, your design concept is going to be different. And the constructs that are put out there are very evocative. Like when I hear the idea of a watering hole or a cave or uh, a campfire, okay. you know, like those things, they, they immediately trigger some associations in my mind that are very different than the associations I might have with a classroom or a school building. Could you expand a little bit on that? Sure. So basically, David Thornburg came up with what he called primordial learning metaphors. Mm -hmm. And he talked about the cave, the campfire, the watering hole and life. And essentially what he was saying is that learning um, is, is a process that involves many aspects to it. Mm -hmm. So you can learn from a storyteller at a campfire. Mm -hmm. you know, today, that, that campfire might be the glow of an LCD projector. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but you also learn from your peers in a watering hole setting. You know, that's yep. why you people go to bars and hang out. And so watering holes are very important ways in which we learn because we mm -hmm. communicate with our peers. And there's research that shows that cooperative learning, which is when students are literally just talking to each other, yeah. allows them to learn more than if they were just listening to a teacher. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The third form is uh, cave, which means that today's world, when we are being buffeted by information right and left, this, we need time to process. Yes. We need time to get away from everything. And that's mm -hmm. why you have these aha moments, you know, whether it's in your shower or whether it's when you're driving home in the car, the yeah. times when you are truly alone and you're not looking at your phone. Mm -hmm. And those moments are important. That's a cave time. Mm -hmm. And finally, there's life, which is that no matter how much theory I get, how much 
expert uh, opinions I hear, end of the day, life is going to throw a curveball at me. Yeah. Things may not work out exactly in life the way I had predicted. And how do I respond to those unexpected situations? How do I take this other learning, this theoretical learning, and apply it in life context and maybe learn by mistakes? Maybe yeah. learn, look, it doesn't work in this context, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So life can be a great teacher as well. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is uh, a school building can be thought about like that. Are we putting children truly through these four cycles mm -hmm. or are we just hammering them with the campfire mode mm -hmm. where they are sitting and listening to a lecture, no matter how fascinating it might be? Right. How much is that going to benefit them if they don't complete that cycle? Because essentially you're just filling their head with information. It's useless unless you actually apply it. Your right. brain actually is, is hardwired to forget that information mm -hmm. if it doesn't actually use it in some context. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I liked how life in some ways connects a bit to the power of learning outside of a traditional classroom in light of the pandemic response and the need for, for, for healthy ventilation and outdoors. Right. I'd love to get a little more of your perspective on that trend, which, which I would imagine is going to be accelerated in this day and age where the more opportunities to be expeditionary and or in other outdoor contexts. I know that's something you've written about for 20 years. I imagine that idea is getting more attention in light of the, the pandemic and, and what you've recently written. Yeah. Could you expand a bit on that? Sure. I wrote a piece called Outdoor Learning, Leave the Classroom Behind. And this was written as a white paper for the Association for Learning Environments. Mm -hmm. And essentially what I was trying to do here was slowly and gently take people away from the idea that if you go outdoors, you don't have to take the classroom. Mm -hmm. So you'll be surprised. You won't be surprised actually to hear people say, Oh, let's have an outdoor classroom. Yeah. You probably heard that term yourself. Let's right? have class outside. Yeah. yeah. But if it's outside, then by definition, it's not a classroom. Mm, it's true. So why would you ever say outdoor classroom? It doesn't mm -hmm. make any sense. It just shows you how much the word classroom has been embedded into our brain to imagine yeah. that somehow magically, adding the word classroom will create learning that might not happen if that word were removed. Yeah. And my point is that almost anything that you do outside, almost anything that you do outside will give you learning, real learning. And I'm talking about the 21st century skills, particularly in the context of the fourth industrial revolution, will give outdoor, uh, being outdoors will give you skills far superior to anything that you can ever get in a sitting in a classroom, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So my point is that make the outdoors environments more naturally serve what they can serve as great environments for learning. Yeah. Whether it's just contemplating the sky yeah. um, or, or having an existential conversation sitting on a, in a in grass mm -hmm. and, you know, about hum humanity mm -hmm. or whether it's actually looking at water quality in your neighborhood and mm -hmm. testing that. Yeah. Uh, or looking at what insects grow there. There's almost no uh, limit to the kinds of things that you can do outside. Uh, that ultimately will connect back to the skills that the curriculum is looking for, right? Yeah, yeah. But you don't have to be obsessed with delivering that content that's in that textbook. Mm -hmm. And imagine that if you don't do that, somehow your child is going to be left behind and will not learn and right. is going to be disadvantaged. It's the right. opposite is true. Mm -hmm. Children who learn outside, there's lots and lots of research that says that children who learn outside actually benefit greatly. In fact, I don't know if you've heard this term, but it was actually in a book called Last Child in the Woods. And it's a term called nature deficit disorder, mm. which literally is, is real. It's not an wow. imaginary thing, especially yeah. today in, in, in an urban context, children who don't have access to nature uh, mm. have mm. serious emotional um, uh, issues and physical and health issues. Yeah. If you really care about children, 
And if, and if you define education more broadly as their ability to be successful in life, mm -hmm. uh, there's a direct correlation between that and learning. By the way, I just also, the inverse is just as true. Countries that are focused exclusively on academics actually do much worse in real life. These mm. kids don't have the creative skills. They don't have the agility. Yeah. They don't have the mental uh, fortitude to, to take on life because it doesn't come in neatly packaged slices as does the curriculum. Yeah. You know? So yeah. there's an inverse relationship. So even as we're celebrating PISA scores, for example, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That has zero connection with how you might do in real life, which is why American schools, bad as they are, kids tend to do somewhat better here because at least graduates are a little bit more confidence than a kid, say, um, in, a, in another country, which is hammering them into submission. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. Also, the, the benefit of being exposed to different contexts is another thing that's got to be conducive to learning rather than being in the same four walls all the time. It's very reminiscent of how folks are getting a little stir crazy under lockdown to think that is the same educational model that we're expecting our children to, to endure from kindergarten right on through, through their undergraduate degrees. I would like to hear a little more from you also on lab spaces and Akiva was another term that I saw mm -hmm. out there that was yeah. really interesting. Are there other like constructs or architectural concepts that are uh, beneficial for folks to be thinking about that are different than the traditional model of the, the classroom? Yeah, actually the, the fundamental model, uh, a building block, right? We talked about classroom as a building block. Mm -hmm. The building block that we recommend, at least I do, uh, is called the learning community. Mm -hmm. And the idea of a learning community is start with the idea that, why am I coming to school? If I am not doing things in school that I, could, that I was not able to do at home, in other words, if I'm doing things in school that I could have done much better at home, there's no point for me coming yeah, to school. So right. we start with the idea that whatever I do in school, I'm doing because I couldn't have done this somewhere else. That justifies me, a parent, actually getting a kid ready and forcing them, jumping on a bus and getting them to school because they're doing something there that is important that's going to add value to their life. Right. So if you think about it, we talk about socialization. Now, I'm, my point is, yes, social, uh, social emotional development is an incredibly important uh, thing that schools can do, but they don't because mm -hmm. a classroom is not a good, there is no uh, equivalent place in the in, in world like a classroom. That's saying I put my kid on a plane, have him uh, sit in a plane from Cal New York to California and magically becomes friends with everybody in because they're all sitting in their seats. Mm -hmm. It's not the best way to learn how to socialize. It's a very unnatural context. Natural socializing happens when you Two, things, two people are doing some stuff together and then mm -hmm. they have a casual conversation. They talk about yesterday's baseball game or yeah, whatever, right, you know. Right, socializing right. doesn't happen in a classroom. That's not a real kind of socialization, which is why you have gangs and various other ways. Because yeah. children want to belong. So a community, a learning community, takes a group of no more than 150 students and there's anthropological research that shows yes. why 150 is a magic number. Yes. And no more than 150 for Early years, I would say no more than 100. And so we put, take a group of 100 students and we say, how much space would you, the school, have given these kids? We would have given them four classrooms and we would have given them a hallway and then we would have built a library for them, etc. So don't do that. Give me that space and I'll create an amazing environment here in which these, these 100 children can have access to all four or five adults that might be teaching them, yeah. not just one. Right. And those four teachers can now work as a team. Because I'm, when I'm working in a team, I'm so much more powerful. There's research yeah. from Stanford that says 
when teachers collaborate, student achievement just skyrockets. Mm -hmm. The number one thing we can do. So I want teachers to collaborate. Mm -hmm. I want students to be able to uh, have access to multiple modalities of learning, yeah. not just lectures, right? Yes. I want them to be able to present. I want them to be able to work on projects. I want them to be able to do research. I want them to be able to get away and be independent, do some independent work. Yeah. And I can go on and there, as I said, there are 20 modalities. I want them to access all 20 modalities. Right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and at the same time, essentially have every child feel welcome and feel that they belong. So now even if I'm coming to a school of a thousand or 2000 or 3000 students, as the case may be, mm -hmm. I walk into a learning community where everybody knows me by name. Yeah. So what we are doing here, using the architectural construct to create healthy communities where children are actually valued for being children and given the opportunity to learn uh, in ways that they could never have learned if they were sitting trapped in a classroom. Yeah. And you have case study, like you're doing this, right? It's just more the, the challenge of adoption and scale is where we run into the, the, the brick wall of the inertia in K-12, which exists for a lot of different reasons. But in some ways, you can point to case studies where you've seen that this is genuinely better. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is really getting the institutional will, the vision, the, the courage to try this new model. Is, is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So the, the, the thing is that, of course, the early um, adopters were private schools, mm -hmm. which needed to stay ahead of the curve. Yep. And so when they had money to fix their existing buildings, they came to us and said, okay, what can I do here? But particularly if I want to do it quickly, like over a summer, for example. Mm -hmm. So we would show them, we call them Pathfinder projects. Very quickly, you can take an existing space with a hallway and a few classrooms and transform them into a learning community in which you can do interdisciplinary courses, teachers work as collaborative teams, students are, in, if you need them, can be inter, inter age or they can be the same grade level, mm -hmm. but they are engaging in multiple modalities of learning. So that curriculum is now delivered in a much more rich manner. Mm -hmm. And the students are prospering both academically, but also socially and uh, emotionally. Mm -hmm. And also developing these other skills that you need, like you know, critical thinking skills, creativity skills, all of these kinds of things, or problem solving skills. These are yep. things that they need. So we are, Essentially, even in good schools, we are adding value beyond them doing well on the test scores. Mm -hmm. Slowly, we began, public schools began to realize we needed even more. And especially if this doesn't cost a lot of money, why shouldn't we do it? Mm -hmm. So we've now done a lot of work in public schools in the United States and all over the world, where sometimes individual schools and sometimes entire school systems are taking over the model. One example would be Boulder Valley School District. They had $575 million to spend on a capital program. Mm -hmm. They read my book, uh, Blueprint for Tomorrow. They called me and we had a conversation. And I said, you can either build a school that's going to be obsolete on the day it opens, or you can take this money and leverage it so you can improve education for all children in your school district. And they mm -hmm. actually took that to challenge. They broke, they completely threw away the old model and developed brand new schools that are and renovations that completely broke the mold. And mm -hmm. so they do have the learning community model happening across the school district there. Yeah, yeah. So this is now happening in, um, Canada has adopted it to a great extent. There are many schools in the United States as well that have done this. But again, it's a drop in the bucket when you consider how many schools have not jumped on this uh, new way of thinking. Yeah, and I imagine it's in part, they're so deeply intertwined that you actually do need to reimagine how you deliver education rather than just come up with a new architectural design and expect everything to change. That those two things actually, they're deeply interrelated. You do need to have the buy-in around reconceptualizing how education would work so that you're 
it does take work though, I imagine. Change does yeah. take effort and you do need to get that buy-in. Yeah. If, if folks want to find, uh, find out more about this or if they want to get activated in their own uh, school district or in their own uh, places where they work, where would you recommend they go? They can go to my website, which is educationdesign.com. Mm-hmm. And in the publication section, we have a lot of publications, including books. By the way, the books that we have, I'm happy to give your listeners free electronic copies of them. Awesome. Uh, so they can get their ebook. They can buy it from Amazon or they can do it free from us. As well. yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of this stuff is already um, in there. But again, I think you're right about the fact that this is difficult. But the thing is, we have to be really careful about is when we start thinking about the future of education, we have to put aside our own impression of what it's supposed to look like. Yes. And when we are going to talk to a brain surgeon, we have no conception of what he or she might be doing. Right. And we don't um, uh, preach to them or tell them because we haven't been brain surgeons, but we've all been educated in schools. Almost all of us have. Yeah. And so we have a preconception of what education is supposed to look like. And we then want our children to go through that same experience, not realizing or not acknowledging that our world is so different today than it yeah. was when we were growing up. Mm-hmm. And so even if we succeeded, and I, my own point is that we succeeded in spite of it, no matter how much credit you want to give your school, you succeeded in spite of your school, not because of it. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. uh, there is really no excuse to say it worked for me and therefore it should work for my child. Right, right. A child is growing up in the fourth industrial revolution where changes are happening at an exponential rate. Entire industries are being wiped out overnight. Right. And to imagine that our children won't have to change, they'll have to change jobs and careers seven, eight times. I'm not talking yeah. about jobs. They may have changed careers seven times. Right. So they have to be exceptionally agile. They cannot grow up in a system with a rigid curriculum and being rewarded for following the rules and not making mistakes. This right. system is going to fail them miserably. Right. And the school building is the most visible uh, evidence of this. Yeah. I mean, and if we don't, we have to start somewhere. And I'm saying that we're spending billions and billions of dollars on school buildings, right? Yeah. Why don't we leverage that money to change what we know edu- education should be? And we don't have to throw away all school buildings either. We can yeah. start with what we have. You know? Yeah, yeah. Especially if you look at the, the reimagination of so many other uh, public spaces in the last 20, 30 years, the, the integration of technology, the, the use of outdoor space. It does happen yeah. in retail. And libraries in, have changed quite a libraries bit. Libraries have changed, exactly. Yeah. My wife is a librarian, so I have to note that. Yeah, and then the other thing, uh, Prakash, that we always love to ask our, our guests for is any perspective on new trends, things that are emerging that we haven't talked about that you think are worth tracking or maybe particularly impactful to to the the future of learning the future of the the classrooms and and spaces that students are going to be learning in yeah i think the biggest trend i would say is that industry is not jumping into the getting into the act Mm -hmm. because as i said they had before been passive recipients of what the education system handed them yeah and now they're saying sorry i mean a a kid with a college degree is not good enough (laughs) they can't do anything even a degree from mit or harvard may not be enough for them so google has jumped into the act by creating multiple certifications Mm -hmm. um switzerland most people don't realize it has very high employment after school after school and actually a relatively low college attendance because kids are coming out of school getting exceptionally good jobs starting in the range of $75,000 a high school kid. So more and more industries are realizing that I can train in six months what the college uh, has taken four years to do or what the high school is taking four years to do, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So essentially uh, that these certifications 
Now, if education is smart, they'll jump on board with and create partnerships, which we have done. Some of our schools have partnered with uh, universities and they've also partnered with uh, BMW and other industries. Yeah, yeah. So I think that this industry school partnership could be a big next big deal because now schools are going to be forced to think about their curriculum from the perspective of let me focus on things that kids can actually use. Maybe they want to become a chef. Let me, let me tra train them for that. Let me train them to be you know, psychologists, whatever it is that happening in the real world, as opposed to the generic curriculum that we've been pushing on every child and make it personal too, and right? make it personalized. So I think that these pushes are coming and this is happening very rapidly. And the pandemic yeah. has just woken people up to the realization that our traditional education system was always broken. Right. We didn't need right. a pandemic to figure that out. Figure that out. Right. And everybody's trapped in the system. It's mm -hmm. not like people don't want to change it, but it, they feel like the system, the, 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 the inertia of the system is so great yeah. that they can't move that in, in a different direction. But I think that's going to happen one way or the other. And I think yeah. this uh, involvement of industry is going to be the big next big thing. Yeah, yeah. And then with in light of the response to the pandemic, everyone has to rethink their mental models regardless. So it is a, a shock to the system that's encouraging flexibility of thought and hopefully break through uh, innovations like some of the ones that uh, you and team have really led and supported throughout the years. Prakash Nair, the, thank you so much for the time you were able to provide us. It was certainly illuminating. I would encourage to our listeners, don't just find what Prakash is doing. Look at some of these images. They're really uh, brilliant. They inspire a lot of reimagining, which I think is, is long overdue, was certainly long overdue for me. Prakash, thank you very much for joining us and appreciate the time. Thank you, Mike, and keep doing the great work you're doing. I'll be, I'm a big fan and I'll continue to follow you. Awesome. And for our listeners, hopefully you're a big fan as well and you're following us and the conversation continues. Thanks as always for listening. We'll be back again soon on Trending in Education.